everyone and welcome to Carbon Neutral. This week we are revisiting hopeful news stories from throughout the season. So we have a special guest for the show today and I'll give you all a little background first before I introduce him. Uh, So back in our Big Year and Citizen Science episode, I talked about this really great story out of Colorado um, where this environmentalist couple, Dawn and Lynn Ireland, convinced their entire neighborhood to switch to native, water-conserving plantings in their yards and public spaces, saving them a tremendous amount of water and also serving as a really inspiring example of enacting meaningful change on a local level. So I am very excited to be talking today with Don Ireland. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sylvan. Great to be here with you. Good. So let's just start at the beginning. You moved into your neighborhood in Colorado, and what gave you the idea to focus on changing the landscape? And also, what did it look like when you first moved in? Well, Lynn had been here. Lynn is my wife. She had been here for probably 15 years as a single mom, raising two daughters on her own. And when I met her and moved here from Pittsburgh, I noticed, wow, it's dry here. It doesn't rain or snow much in the city of Denver. And I also noticed the plants were different except for that common denominator of bluegrass. But as I looked around, I noticed, well, the old plants in front of homes were primarily junipers with the 1960s decor of lava rock, which, of course, like lava lamps, are long gone. And uh, Lynn said, wow, this is this place is starting to look aged and dated because we're in a 40-year-old condo association, homeowners association. So we decided that maybe I should run for the board and see what we could do to make the place look better. At the same time, I was learning that our HOA was spending 42% of its monthly budget and our annual budget on water and sewage costs. It's the way HOAs were designed then. One water pipe comes in, evenly distributed to everybody, and everybody pays a share, even if it's a disproportionate share. Say one house is one person and the next house is six people. Everybody pays the same bill. So my investigation led me to realize, well, we could save money inside homes if we could talk people into switching to water-saving, high-efficiency toilets. And outside, if we changed our sprinkler heads, changed our plants, we could re-beautify the place, improve our property values, and most of all, save water. So water became a critical issue, and seeing some of the plants that were available, how beautiful they are, and how little water they took, it became a no-brainer for me to convince our board we need to do this to modernize the look of the place, and also to help us with our water savings. And that's what happened. So... So how was it? Was it a hard sell convincing all of your neighbors to make the switch or were they pretty receptive to it right off the bat? Well, the Homeowners Association, you know, is the collective of all 251 homes or condo homes here in the neighborhood. And of course, some people are always going to be opposed to any change. It's something new. It's something different. Many of them embraced the idea because we were able to sell it on the premise. If we save water, it's going to help us prevent an increase in your monthly homeowner's dues each year. So that was a big, easy sell. So there are a few people who will never, never adapt and change, and they think a lawn should only be bluegrass, and regardless of where they live. And, you know, you'll always have a few people like that, but progress means looking at where you are and adapting to that region. You know, you're not going out in Florida and buy 
snow skis, a shovel, and a parka because you just don't need it. That's not where right. you live. Yeah. So a lot of people, I think when they when they hear about landscaping that conserves water, they don't think of abundance and lushness and beauty, right? They kind of think of, oh, I, I, all I get is rocks and the occasional cactus or something. But in looking at the pictures of your of your neighborhood's transformation, that's really not true, is it? No, because xeriscaping, which is low water plantings, is different than zero, Z-E-R-O, scaping. And one of the things we said, we don't want to look like we're in Tucson, Arizona. That's not who our local environment is. You know, we're a place that gets a little rainfall, a little snowfall, but these plants can thrive and do well, and they'll come back every year. So that's what we went after. So we went after a look that was appropriate for Colorado. And another big thing that America has to battle is bluegrass. I'm not opposed to bluegrass. It's appropriate in certain places if you have kids, want to have a lawn party, walk the dog on it. But America over the past 100 years has fallen in love with the idea that if you don't have the meanest, greenest, most manicured green lawn in town, well, you're you're a different class of people. And we've got to get away from that because Kentucky bluegrass, which is beautiful, really only thrives and does well on its own in the eastern United States and part of the northeastern United States. It's not appropriate for Montana or Colorado or California. So it's changing that thought paradigm that's probably my message to people. Do something good for nature. Plant native plants. Plant something that's appropriate for where you live, regardless of where it is that you live. Yeah, so... In addition to the the costs, you know, just from an economic perspective on having native plantings, there's also a lot of other benefits, right? Can you speak to some of those? Well, one of the great things that I noticed after we went through five years, we did our landscaping do-over in five years just for budgetary constraints, is that all of a sudden now we have birds we've never seen in our neighborhood. We have more butterflies. We have hummingbirds that come in this in the mornings and in the evening, we're hearing crickets and seeing grasshoppers and things that most of our neighborhood was pretty dead and devoid of, except for a few birds in the trees. So we're seeing more life and, you know, it's a wonderful thing to hear crickets at night and see little yellow finches and red-tailed hawks flying around the neighborhood. It's, you know, it's a wonderful, refreshing, stress-lowering feel to the neighborhood. Absolutely. And I feel like the more science looks into the human health benefits of being in those kinds of environments, the more and more evidence we see that it's not just good for nature, it's it's good for us as well. Well, the Audubon Society uh, in Colorado and Wyoming, it's called Rockies Audubon. Their motto is, where birds thrive, people prosper. And I think there's oh. a whole lot to say to that. And They've been a great supporter of what we've been trying here, and they've publicized this, and so is National, because they're believers. You know, you think Audubon's just birds. Well, they're not. They're concerned about the rivers. They're concerned about the pollinators other than birds. They're concerned about what's happening. And as America's growing, our population's getting bigger, we're taking out more natural spaces to put in cities and towns, and we need that land for people. But instead of just putting in concrete and bluegrass, now developers are starting to look at what's appropriate for this area. And they're putting in more native and xeric plants. So 
they're putting in things. So I tell people, if you have a balcony, instead of just putting petunias that you have to water every day on a pot, why not put in a native plant or a xeric plant and you might get that butterfly coming by or the hummingbird coming by. So there's a lot of things you can do even if you're only transforming a couple of square feet of bluegrass into something much more terrific. So that kind of leads me into my next question, which I know this must have been a massive undertaking, right? Over 250 lawns, five years. For people who are thinking of doing something like this in their own communities, where did you find the resources to help you on the planting process? And and how did you go about kind of finding those resources? Well, I did a lot of Google searching and internet searching and then discovered there's a lot of good organizations in every state. Uh, Things like the Native Plant Societies. These folks have been doing this for years all over the country in their local chapters. There's even a group called the Wild Ones. And no, they're not a motorcycle gang. They're people who are interested in putting more native plants into their local environment. So I don't think of myself as a pioneer or anything. I just think of myself as some normal average guy who got lucky and decided let's do something instead of Let's sit around thinking about what we might want to do. So step by wow. step, you know, one little plot at a time, and slowly but surely we began to evolve our community. Yeah, well, that's a really great point is that this wasn't necessarily what you worked in previously, right? This was just kind of something you saw that you wanted to change. So what would your advice be to individuals um, who want to start a similar project or who are, you know, looking around in their community and seeing something that they think can be improved, but so far they've only just thought about it. Well, start the conversation with your neighbors. Uh, if you live in a homeowners association, go to your homeowners association board. I've been very blessed because of the success we have had so far that here in Colorado, I have had a lot of homeowners associations come to us saying, We're starting to drown in our water and sewer bills because when you use water, you also get charged for sewage. So they've come and said, hey, we've got problems. What do you do? And I said, change your landscaping. Talk to your people about putting in high-efficiency toilets. They said, what can a toilet do? And I said, well, one toilet. If you take a a three-and-a-half-gallon traditional toilet, which you can find in many homes, change it to a one-gallon or a 1.28-gallon per flush toilet, you can save 16,000 gallons of water in one year. That's a lot of water, and it's less off your sewage bill, too. So you can do little steps incrementally. You don't have to go out and bulldoze the entire neighborhood. You just do it step by step. I think the old saying is, by the yard it's hard, but by the inch it's a cinch. And there's a lot of truth in that. I like that. So overall, what has been the total savings in terms of water in your community? Well, we've been able to, uh, the, the one year compared to when we started, we saved 15.8 million gallons of water a year. We're still saving about that amount. When we started, we were using close to 37 million gallons of water a year. We're now in the 20 to 22 range because more people move in and some people use more water than others. So we've been able to maintain that low rate. We've also, as an HOA, took a bold move this year. We started telling people, look, if you never changed your toilets or if you're thinking of getting a new clothing washer or a new dishwasher, if you get one with the EPA water sense seal of approval on, that means it's high efficiency. And we'll give you a rebate, even though you're paying for the thing and you're paying for the installation, 
we'll give you anywhere between 30 and $50 back for doing that, and that's on top of what a local water authority might give. So we're trying to incentivize people and motivate them by saying, hey, look, the water you use, everybody's paying for, so let's do this together as a community. Let's talk more about this because quite truthfully, Sylvan, in the future, America is going to be in a water situation if we don't become more efficient, if we don't become smarter about the water we use. And uh, yeah. the, the other fun thing, smart controllers for irrigation clocks, MP rotor heads, which can distribute just as much water as the plants need, but use a lot less water than the old traditional pop-up heads. There's just so many good things with technology out there that many people weren't even aware of. Irrigation controllers now uh, will have a solar sink to them, and based on the sun and the evaporation rate in the atmosphere, will water a little more, and if it rained yesterday, it'll water less, or maybe not water at all if it's your watering day. So you can save money by having smarter technology. And in many places in the country, they offer through the local water authorities rebates for these things. So instead of wasting five gallons of water on a patch of grass, if you expend only one or two and the grass is just as green, hooray, you've won double. <laughs> you've gotten <laughs> the green grass you want and you've also saved money on water. Yeah, it's a whole new world out there. Something we discussed in, in the original episode where we talked about your story, because um, we were talking about citizen science, and we talked about the fact that if you can draw in your community to just participate in you know one of these kind of projects, it can really have an addictive almost quality, or it can, it can lead to just way higher engagement down the line on all sorts of environmental issues and projects. Um, have you found that to be the case in your community where people are getting more involved now that they've seen the success of this landscaping project? Absolutely. One of the things we did was take out this big section of bluegrass uh, at the junction of three buildings. Think of like a triangle-shaped uh, piece of bluegrass. We took it out, and we started a community garden. And people said, HOAs do not have community gardens. And we said, <laughs> well, hey, we're going to try it. That thing is now in its sixth year. All the plots have been taken every year. I mean, it has been so wow. popular. And people who didn't have the opportunity to garden before because the front of their home was their planting patch. And, uh, you know, you didn't want tomato plants. You didn't want to look like uh, green acres in your HOA. <laughs> so people right. got their own little plots, started planting lettuce and tomatoes and herbs and veggies. And now I call our community garden kind of our neighborhood bar because every night there's people over there spinning stories and telling tales and competing to see who can grow the biggest tomatoes. And we have other elderly residents who don't participate who walk their dog and sit on the bench outside and converse with their neighbors. So it's become a fun meeting point in our neighborhood. All this from a right. dead or a useless stretch of bluegrass that uh, had no real purpose prior to this. And another thing we learned since we did 50 of our home fronts each year, the little plotting plant and uh, planting plot in front of each home, we went and did the first 50, the second 50. In the first couple of years, you plant new plants. They're small. They don't look like much. But then all of a sudden, third, fourth, fifth year, they start to blossom and grow and start attracting butterflies and hummingbirds and things. The neighbors who were at the other end of the neighborhood in phase five were coming to me saying, can't you do mine early? Or 
I, I want this bush that's in front of uh, Sally's house, and I want this other bush in front of Tina's house. And so we ended up with, by the time we got to phases three, four, and five, people were putting their request, and they were chomping into bit, trying to get in front of the line out of place. So we, we knew it was spreading at that point and that people yeah. were really liking it. So with all of this success, what what's next for you? Do you and Lynn have any other big projects in the works? Well, Lynn and I were very fortunate. We were featured in two documentaries. One has gone national. Uh, Catherine Zimmerman, an award-winning director of 40 years, teamed up with Dr. Doug Tallamy, who's at the University of Delaware. They created a movie called Hometown Habitat, Stories of Bringing Nature Home. It's on their website, which is called themeadowproject.com. They're they're non-profit, so I'm not plugging somebody. But (laughs) but it is a story. We're included in the segment, but it talks about what's being done by people just like us all over the country. New York City decided to plant 10 million trees in their urban, you know, you think of New York City as, oh, just asphalt and concrete. Well, they, they got 10 million trees planted ahead of schedule. In South Florida, they're reclaiming parts of the beach for mango groves. Uh, in other parts of the country, they're cutting out invasive plants and repopulating it with native plants. So from Wisconsin to Ohio to Florida and all over, there are citizen scientists and people who just give a darn trying to do great things and help the environment in their neighborhood. So I don't think of myself as a pioneer. I'm just one little foot soldier who's trying to make a difference in my little patch of grass in uh, southeastern Denver, Colorado. Well, I'd say you succeeded, so that is just wonderful. Well, I will definitely be putting the links to uh, those documentaries up on our website so that our listeners can look at them and and be inspired by everything you and, and other foot soldiers are achieving. But thank you so much for stopping by the show and talking to us about this really cool project. It has been wonderful. All right. Thanks so much, Don. You take care. Now that we've had that update on Don Ireland's stunning transformation of his Cherry Creek neighborhood in Denver, Colorado, I'm going to ask the rest of the Carbon Neutral crew to update me on some of their favorite hopeful news stories from throughout the season. So hello everyone, I am here with Jordan, Steffi, and Emily. Hey! Hey y'all! So the What's Giving Us Hope for the Earth segment is often our favorite part of the show, because it leaves us feeling optimistic about the state of environmentalism. And as we all know, fighting apathy is half the battle. But a lot of times we wonder what happens to these cool stories after we tell you about them. So this week we thought we would check back on some of our hopeful news stories and see uh, what is going on. So Emily, how you doing? Doing all right in the throes of business school, if you can believe it. Fun stuff. So you wanted to update us on a hopeful news story from our Mad Max episode. What have you got for us? Yeah, so it turns out that a lot of my hopeful news stories are long-term development deals that are really difficult to track changes in over the course of three to six months. So... There are, I remember them well. Yes. Um, so one of the things that I actually had brought to the table that has changed substantially is advances in blockchain, the distributed ledger technology that underpins digital currencies like Bitcoin. 
So I talked in Mad Max about a coffee startup called Bex360 that uses blockchain to trace and verify sustainably sourced coffee through its supply chain. Blockchain is very complicated, but all you need to know is that it builds reliable, fast, and accessible information about the source and history of products by inputting transactions from many participants. It's kind of like crowdsourcing on steroids. So the Bex360 case was really exciting because it's usually so hard to see into supply chains that reach millions of rural producers all across the globe on tiny plots of land. In other words, these supply chains are rarely transparent. And that matters because how can you say that a product is deforestation-free or cruelty-free or even safe if you don't know for sure where it came from? Right. So blockchain has a lot of potential applications, and... As of August 29th, there's a major update on how it's being applied to improve supply chain traceability. Ten major food companies joined a Walmart-IBM collaboration that's using blockchain technology to track goods as they move through the supply chain. If the project succeeds, a food safety issue in one part of the world, say a salmonella outbreak in Minneapolis, could be traced back to a factory in China almost instantaneously. But food safety is just one potential application. The fact that companies like Unilever, Nestle, Tyson Foods, and Kroger, a lot of whom we've shouted out over the course of the season, have jumped on board with this project means that we'll get to see this insane technology progress even faster, which is great news for the transparency and accountability of currently opaque global supply chains. Wow, that is really cool. I feel like that will help consumers make informed choices about what they want to buy and, you know, voting with their dollars so much easier too. Yes. Imagine if you could walk into a supermarket, scan a product with a QR code reader on your phone and know everything about where it's been, who's touched it, and how it's been handled. It'll make grocery shopping feel like you're in a Jason Bourne movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we can all be our own personal Sherlock Holmes with blockchain. Yes, love it. So, Steffi, uh, you had something you wanted to update us from, from the Day After Tomorrow episode, right? Yes. So, back in episode seven, the Day After Tomorrow, I was talking about a chunk of money that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation had allocated to AAAS, which is the owner of the journal Science and four other magazines that publish academic articles, which would go to having all articles published in these journals be accessible for free, not behind any sort of paywall. And this is something, I I think we talked about it in the episode, how we all are huge supporters of open access to primary source literature. So I wanted to go into a little bit more depth of what else is coming out in this arena. So there's a new app called Unpaywall that helps you find legal free copies of scientific articles and they've they've analyzed all academic articles published from the year 1900 to today and they've found that 28% of those articles are available for free now which is a lot but even more hopeful out of academic articles published since 2015 45% of them are available for free legally uh, so this is just going to show that this trend is really moving in the right direction And Unpaywall has a Google Chrome extension that you can install that helps you identify which articles you can get for free, even if you don't have Mm. any affiliation with the university. 
Additionally, Norway has just set a goal to have all of their research that's funded by their country be available for free by 2024. It feels like we're about to hit a threshold where primary literature is going to have to be available for free to the public, and I'm really looking forward to that. That's awesome. Right on, Norway. I actually have kind of a crazy story about that. When I was doing research in Ecuador, my research advisor at the Universidad San Francisco de Quito asked me to go ahead and download as many articles as I possibly could from the UNC library because it turns out that his entire lab, his graduate school lab, had been doing all of their article references for article submissions exclusively using the abstracts that they could get for free because the Ecuadorian university did not have the resources to pay to subscribe to all these journals. Wow. That's That's nuts. All right. Well, thanks for that update, Steffi. That is really good news. Yeah. (laughs) So Jordan, I understand you have an update that actually is something I brought up way back in our Aaron Brockovich episode. Yeah. So like, Emily said a lot of my hopeful news and updates are kind of long-term things that don't change that frequently, but I do have an update for yours, which is those 21 children and young adults that are suing the United States government for failure to address climate change. So the trial is currently in the discovery phase, but it will actually start on February 5th, 2018, which isn't that far away. No, it's not. Um, and it's going to be in a federal court in Eugene, Oregon, with Judge Ann Aiken. A judge also granted a request made in late May by the country's biggest fossil fuel lobbies to withdraw from the case. They had joined on the government's side, and they filed several motions to have the case dismissed. But since all of these were denied, they requested to be dropped from the proceedings, probably to shield them from deposition and discovery. So... Basically, before the trial is even starting, the government side is kind of losing steam. Wow. So, Jordan, what what are the grounds for this lawsuit? Like, why can kids tell the government that it's illegal, not just neglectful, for them to refuse to address climate change? Uh, their lawsuit is actually based on the public trust doctrine, which asserts that the government holds things like land, water, etc., uh, in a trust for its citizens. So in 2015, the environmental plaintiffs in the Netherlands, South Africa, and Pakistan, as well as Massachusetts and Washington State, won similar human rights or constitutional cases that forced the authorities to more aggressively cut carbon emissions. Cool. So it sounds like there's like some precedent for these cases to actually be successful. Yeah, absolutely. This would just be a much larger scale. Yeah. That's awesome. I was going to say, well, it was only in, you know, liberal hippie havens, but then Pakistan doesn't really, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Doesn't I don't think really South Africa is really a hippie haven either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we will see. Uh, that'll be something that we can continue to update in our next season, because I'm sure it's going to be a very exciting court case. Yeah. But go youths. Youths. So those are our updates on some of the hopeful news stories. We encourage you all to check out our show notes where you can find all of the information on all of the hopeful news stories that we have talked about throughout the season. And uh, you can figure out for yourself if they're still hopeful and uh, feel free to drop us a line and tell us what's going on because we always love to hear from you at carbonneutralpod at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, as I announced last week, we will be going on a brief hiatus. 
but we will be returning for season two in no time at all. So check back. And I also want to say there's a survey up on carbonneutralpodcast.com. It's asking for feedback on season one. It's very quick. It's anonymous. And we just want to know what you liked, what you think could be better. Uh, We just want to make season two even better and even more of what you like about Carbon Neutral. So do us a favor. Go fill out the survey. It'll take five minutes of your time. Carbonneutralpodcast.com. Until then, I hope you have a great rest of your summer, and thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. <laughs> Wait, let's try that again.